The greatest wounds we humans face emotionally are almost all caused by relationships. They're relational. If you uh, look at the recent work by people like neuropsychologists like Lieberman, Alan Shore, Fanagi, uh, and on and on. What we see is that the brain is specifically set up in such a way as to store the uh, and to alert us to how well connected we are to other people. And that our emotional wounds are um, by and large caused by interpersonal events that leave us feeling cut off, abandoned, rejected, shamed, unwanted. The right anterior cingulate cortex, if you care, is actually uh, a part of the cingulate that alerts us to, um, it, it has the greatest control over where you focus your attention. Your left cingulate controls your attention where you want it to go, like when you want to think about work or you want to focus on a TV show or you want to focus on Facebook or you want to focus on some project you're doing. Any volitional work you do is by your left cingulate, but your right cingulate you have no volitional control over and it's there to alert you to the fact that you're in physical pain but just as often it's there to alert you to the after effects of interpersonal woundings and traumas. So your emotional right hemisphere uh, is actually far more powerful than your left, which is why sometimes in life we can't get ourselves out of those loops where we start. We want to think about anything else but that breakup or that, you know, bad news that we found out about, but we can't stop thinking about it. And um, if we look at the core anxieties that people are the most, uh, the, anxi the stages of anxiety that human beings move through in our lifespan, uh, we'll see that virtually all of them have to do with how well connected we are to other people. We are, after all, a social species, we are a species of pack animals that connect to survive. We don't, as it were, run fast, climb trees very well, dig holes, we don't jump into the ocean and swim with great alacrity. So when it comes to being surrounded by predators, wild coyotes, any kind of natural threat, the greatest tool that human beings have is our ability to connect to survive. And that's why our right hemispheres are so devoted to attaining security through connection. And that's why all of our emotions are litmus tests urging, impelling, compelling us to do a better job in connecting. While we all have plans and goals, we all want to write the great American novel or you know, travel to the most unknown beach in Thailand. We all want to accomplish and accumulate uh, great things. But we all, at the meantime, have to go about those tasks while at the same time 
having all these pesky emotions, sadness, loneliness, joy, despair, frustration, confusion, doubt, that come up, and these emotions come up specifically because of interpersonal traumatic events and wounding events. So if we look through the history of a human life, uh, when we are born, we all have what's known as annihilation anxiety. That is, folks, the very simple fear that we're going to be overwhelmed, uh, suffer pain, and be killed, because we're all born babies. We're vulnerable. We can't take care of ourselves. We are essentially uh, vulnerable to any bad thing that could come along and could uh, overwhelm us. So all infants are born with a uh, necessary fear for their own survival that um, is only abated by the human being's hardwired ability to connect with caretakers for love and, and security. So along with grabbing and sucking and other basic, uh, very few innate qualities, the one thing that all human babies have very, very hardwired is the impulse and the ability to connect with others. They can read, they can discern from as little as two or three months human faces and can make contact with human eyes very, very early on. Why? Because the human baby, if it didn't do that, if it couldn't uh, make emotional contact with caretakers, it would be, uh, to use a clinical term, screwed. <laughs> completely screwed. The baby needs to be able to essentially um, connect to survive. So once the baby uh, connects and makes a strong bond with a caretaker, the next great fear we have is, an, is separation. We move on from fearing our death or our annihilation to move, we now fear separation from the caretaker. Um, and if we don't get secure caretaking, we wind up with long-term attachment issues, OCD, fear of being alone. Uh, we wind up with class or cluster B personality disorders. So it's important that you learn how to connect and feel a reliable connection. Unfortunately, if your caretaker per, uh, is too capable of uh, connecting with you and in fact doesn't leave you enough space, enough room to explore the world, then you wind up with what's called engulfment anxiety, which is the fear of essentially losing your identity in the relationship with your caretaker and being essentially controlled. And those uh, people very often grow up to be adults who are, of course, frightened of commitment and feel smothered in virtually any intimate relationship they wind up in. So let's assume that you're really, you're lucky that you don't experience too many woundings and you graduate to um, school where you have to interact with all those scary peers and you have to, uh, then you move on from seeking security from your caretaker to seeking security in the world through bonding with peers. You have to now find your security by gaining admittance to a group of other kids. And uh, that's where it really, I really uh, went down the, uh, <laughs> well, that's where my life really kind of sucked. Um, and if 
you're in that stage, you wind up with the anxiety that I like to feel I mastered when I was a kid. Neurotic anxiety. Neurotic anxiety is the belief that there's some uh, personality trait, some impulse, some characteristic about yourself that will lead to complete rejection by the rest of the world. There's something so ugly, monstrous, or unlovable tucked away in you that if you let your guard down, other people will see it, and so you have to make sure that nobody else sees this part of yourself, so you start becoming increasingly inauthentic to survive because you don't want people to see that part of you that you believe will lead to social rejection and shame. And again, as Lieberman's studies have shown, there's nothing more traumatic than, or one of the most traumatic things in life is the experience of sudden uh, abandonment, rejection, shame, abuse. Um, in my family, my dad was a violent drunk, and his he never fell uh, short of the mark uh, in informing me that I wasn't a real man like him. I was like raised in the city. I was too much of a mama's boy. So he informed me that other people would never accept me for who I am. He was wrong, but I didn't know that. Um, and so for much of my uh, teen years, I tried to look tough and be cool, things that I am completely incapable of. And so I turned increasingly to drugs and alcohol to to create this performance to get love, because if I didn't, I was completely uh, swarmed with neurotic anxiety, fear that other people would see the fact that I wasn't a real man, like my dad said, and they would all reject me. So then the next level is if we do get acceptance from peers, and we do manage to do that through years of therapy, then uh, we wind up with decompensation anxiety, which is the fear of losing our minds and falling apart. And that's sort of like the most adult fear. And so we, uh, we, and then there's also signal anxiety as well, which is the fear of our own emotions and what, and how they'll pull us apart. So, uh, if you listen very closely to, the, to that story of a human life in terms of anxiety. That's such a Jewish thing for me to do. The history of a human life from the point of view of anxiety. But I am Jewish, that's why I'm saying that. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, the thing about that is every, uh, every great fear has to do with our relationship with other people. There's no point, there's no anxiety of, oh, I won't get to write a great... American novel, or, oh, I won't get to go to that beach in Thailand. That's just not an anxiety. I can tell you that in all the years of, of consulting, you know, work that I've done with one-on-one -on -one therapeutic work that I've done, I've never once had somebody come in and say, help me, I'm not, you know, I, I haven't written the great American screenplay yet. It just is not a reason that people essentially... Uh, deeply, deeply struggle. They would like to, but really our core wounds are interpersonal. The woundings we have are so painful that we experience in, in the hands of vulnerable, important relationships that they become the parts of ourselves that we treat as if they're toxic. We treat our, the memories of our, and the feelings associated with rejection and shame 
as if they are nuclear waste that have to be buried as deep into our unconscious minds as possible because acknowledging our rejections, our abandonments, our woundings, the times that uh, the people we trusted were not, uh, didn't care for us, didn't uh, suddenly uh, acted in a way that was heartless. Uh, to feel that pain, which is so confusing, so threatening, kicks up every single major anxiety. We need to, to survive most of the time. What we do is we suppress those woundings. We bury the wounds and we organize our behaviors in such a way as to minimize the risk of, of other woundings happening again. The human brain has what's known as negativity bias. We are especially set up to deeply embed and uh, remember and organize our minds around abandonments and woundings and poor treatment. We, it takes literally five times, according to some studies, uh, it takes five positive remarks to undo um, a, a criticism that stings. But we have that much of a brain that's set up to uh, remember and store and feel the pain of interpersonal abandonment. Is that, is that strong that it has five times the neural weight of positive, beneficial? Because the expulsion from a tribe, the expulsion from a family, the expulsion from a loved one cuts to the most deeply vulnerable place in the human experience. So, um, not only do we bury the wounds, but then we construct a whole set of behaviors to protect us from uh, these woundings ever happen again. The Buddha called these chaitasikas. They're sort of sub-personalities <laughs> that we establish in a contemporary form of um, therapy called internal family systems, which I uh, admire amongst many other forms of modalities. Um, they call these coping strategies managers. Managers are behaviors that we adapt. They're not natural. We adapt them as a way to stay safe in a world of other people, to make, make ourselves lovable, to make ourselves uh, essentially seem admirable or worthwhile so that we'll never ever, we believe, have to experience rejection or abandonment or dismissal or abuse again. So, what are these managers like? They are, uh, there's a whole realm of them. There's the busybody who always has to be achieving things to show how, you know, worthwhile they are because if they ever are not accomplishing things, they feel that other people will stop noticing or stop caring. There's the self-sufficient, self-reliant, the person who can never, ever acknowledge that they're in pain or sad or lonely because they so associate those vulnerable states with rejection, so they uh, maintain that famous stiff upper lip no matter what, because that's the only way they feel they can survive. There's the caretaker, the child that grows up with the parent who was emotionally uh, unreliable, and so the child learns that rather than ever expressing its true, authentic needs, the only way it can maintain a relationship with, a, with its parent is by taking care, becoming a caretaker. And then that child graduates to be 
uh, an adult who constantly shows up for other people, worries about other people, uh, you know, is the first one to uh, show up when somebody needs help, but never expresses their own needs. There's the inner critic who seeks to be perfect and who is constantly hard on themselves for their creative endeavors. There's the perfect, the person who's the life of the party, who only believes they get love and attention by performing, by being funny and being larger than life and calling attention to their creativity. There's the people pleaser, the person who says, you know, the just the right thing, who uh, essentially it puts on a pleasant face that, you know, makes everybody feel welcome. And many of us don't, of course, settle for one manager. We have a number of managers. Hopefully you're not you don't use the same manager in your job, which might you might be the busybody or the perfectionist in your job. You might not hopefully do that when you're at a party with friends. When you're at a party with friends, you might be the life of the party humor person or the caretaker at the party, but when you're at work, you might be the self-reliant person who does everything by themselves or whatever. You get the idea. The problem with these... Um, these managers is that if you live in any of them for too long you will absolutely lose your goddamn minds because none of them allow you to do the one thing that makes life manageable and survivable none of our managers allow us to express our authentic feelings our difficult messy feelings our sadness our loneliness our frustration our confusion our doubt the whole point about managers is that they look good to other people and they look good to other people because we've effaced all of the challenging, difficult, you know, parts of the human experience and just wound up with something that looks nice. And so we bury, along with all of our wounds, those parts of ourselves that we believe are difficult. The part that is unhappy, that wants to complain, that wants to you know, get angry, that wants to express its doubt and confusion. Now, eventually, our managers eventually fail us. We have to go home, we're alone, we're lonely, we're confronted with our own uh, uh, experience without the rest of the workforce or other people. And very often, when we don't get the opportunity to live in these managers which we confuse with our true selves over a period of time, we then fall back on a second set of coping strategies which are now maladaptive. These are known in IFS as firefighters. Firefighters are the addictive qualities in ourselves that come out when we can't be in our managers, we can't look good to other people, we're not performing this is the person that alone, when nobody's looking, binge eats food, or maybe binge eats and then purges, or maybe they watch hours and hours of worthless shit on television, or maybe they, um, they get drunk, or maybe they secretly smoke pot, or maybe they go on Amazon or eBay compulsively and bid for things they don't need, or maybe they... Uh, uh, when they feel really lonely, they call up people and have sex that feels 
ultimately desultory and meaningless just for that fleeting sense of being connected. I could go on, but I don't want to bring you down. Uh, so, uh, and then sometimes this person also gets somatic illness because just as a way to take care of themselves, they uh, experience an illness or a breakdown. Uh, all of these strategies, these second level maladaptive coping strategies known as firefighters, these are there to keep us from re-experiencing the woundings, the painful abandonments, the memories of trauma and loss and interpersonal sufferings that we've gone through in life. So we fall back on our firefighters, our addictive strategies as a last dish attempt to keep us from feeling loneliness, abandonment, um, the, the residues of mistreatment in our life. The most crucial part of healing for a human being is if we simply um, try to, to push aside our managers and push aside our addictions without addressing the underlying core wounds that these, um, uh, these managers and firefighters were established to protect us from, if we don't address the core wounds, we'll just fall into new managers. We won't be the perfectionist, we'll be the people pleaser or the life of the party, but we won't show our true authentic selves to other people. We won't disclose our real needs because we'll still have these buried wounds and these feelings of terror about abandonment. It's only when we exhume these early painful core feelings, some of which predate even our explicit memories, but it's only when we exhume these exiled, wounded feelings and we hold them and we nurture them and we take care of them, like a, essentially nurturing a wounded child, and we make them feel safe, that we can live in the world without relying on these false self personas that are hollow and performative, that are based entirely on look at how funny, how witty, how smart, how brilliant, how how hardworking I am, where we can actually turn to another human being and say, you know what, today I just feel goddamn sad, lonely, and not feel terrified that that other person will reject us. And so, to live, to truly flourish, we have to be able to connect with and heal that which we've been running from our entire life, that very pain that varied experience of, you know, those core traumas. So, um, insight meditation is specifically very, very good for this process. In fact, um, Richard Schwartz, the guy who's the uh, founder of IFS, often refers to his, the methodology of connecting with varied wounds and uh, exiled feelings and asking managers to step aside so that we can connect with our painful experiences. He calls the process insight after insight meditation and insight practice. It's a practice where we use um, what the Buddha called Sati Sampujana, which is uh, a form of meditation where we 
use our creative abilities and our um, explorative, inquisitive minds to connect with parts of ourselves that, and we observe from a detached remove, we observe these parts of ourselves, we treat them with great respect, we don't judge any part of ourselves, we don't criticize any part of ourselves, we open and we, uh, after we understand these parts, we ask them to step aside so that we can feel into and connect with some of the deeper pains that we have been essentially warding off, have been sealing off as if it's toxic waste. And when we find that as an adult we connect with these pains, we find that it's different than when we were children. When we were children, abandonment, rejection, people who were cruel, they literally were people who could lead to our lives ending or at least being lastingly miserable. So we have a relationship with our own pain as if touching it can lead to annihilation. But the good news is, is when we're adults, we can actually connect with and hold and be with pain in a way that it doesn't overwhelm us. If we stop running from it and we learn to turn towards it and greet it and hold it and nurture it, it doesn't consume us. It actually becomes something that we can hold. So we're actually showing our emotional circuits that we don't have to bury these wounds anymore, that we can, in essence, um, be with and connect with these uh, buried pains. So the meditation I'm going to lead you through is going to be just this practice. We're going to ask our managers and our fire, we're going to meet our, some of our managers and some of our firefighters. We're going to ask them to step aside and then we're going to try to connect with some of the um, feelings that we've uh, treated as if they're untouchable and we're going to learn how to hold these wounds. Find a really comfortable seated position and closing your eyes or look at the ground in front of you. You can keep your eyes open if you want, but don't look ahead. Look at the ground in front of you. You don't want to have your attention on the world around you. Insight is a practice where we focus the mind on what is internally occurring. So first, just relax the shoulders and the belly. We'll take a few breaths just to do that. So let's take a nice, full, deep, complete in-breath through the nose, holding it, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, relax your shoulders. And make your out-breath as long and complete as possible so that you're not holding any breath in at the very end. And then another complete in-breath through the nose and tight in your belly as tight as you can, like you're holding it in. And then as you breathe out through your mouth, long and smooth out-breath, softening the belly. And then 
As we take the third in-breath through the nose, squinching the muscles of the face, fists, buttocks, toes, just squeezing any excess muscle groups you, love, you want, and then relaxing all of those muscles. And then for a few minutes, we're going to just stay with the breath. The simplest way is to find the sensations where you are most aware of your body breathing. So if you feel your body breathing by the air moving into the tip of the nose, or maybe you feel it by the chest expanding and contracting, or maybe you feel yourself breathing by the belly or the shoulders, Wherever you feel those sensations of breathing, see if you can then stay and just think in with the in-breath and out with the out-breath, or counting one with the in-breath, two with the out, three with the next in-breath, four with the next out-breath, and when you reach five, then you start count, counting back down, four with the out, three with the end. So you're counting from one up to five, and then back down with one, three, and five always on the in-breath, two and four always on the out-breath. You don't have to push anything out of your awareness. All you need to do is keep awareness of the breath in your awareness. So you don't have to push away any thoughts, any memories, anything that floats through your mind, just allow it. But just keep the breath, the sensations of breathing in the forefront, like the spotlight of your stage in your mind. Spotlight, you, ha you get to focus the spotlight. Spotlight the breathing. Now, your attention is like a spotlight operator gets bored and will want to shift the spotlight into other characters on the stage like memories, plans, worries. So you keep reminding the spotlight operator to focus on the sensations of breathing. So if your attention wanders, if the spotlight operator gets 
caught up and interested in something else going on on stage, just gently remind it to come back to the breath without any judgment or criticism, without any sense that anything wrong has happened, it's all fine, feeling good about your practice. Allow the breath sensations to move into the background of the stage. I'd like you to bring to mind a character that represents the way you behave in work settings or in professional settings or in situations where you often feel on the spot, like you have to perform, like you have to be at the top of your game, as it were. See if you can discern a characteristic, a trait, a set of behaviors that you notice or people commented maybe in the past. Do you become smaller? Do you become larger than life? Do you start to uh, worry about how everybody else feels? To be, become very self-conscious and critical? Do you worry that it's your job to make everybody like each other? Do you become a caretaker, worried about how other people are doing at the expense of your own needs? Just find some set of behaviors that you've developed over the years to survive in the world of others, the workaholic, the perfectionist, 
the performer, the person who tries to be invisible. And with these traits in mind, ask yourself, how does this feel? Can you feel what it's like to be in that state, in your body? Is there an embodied state that comes along with this manager? As you're in the audience and we're holding this manager on the mind stage, you can ask this part of ourselves that needs to perform or be lovable, what is your job? And just see whatever comes to mind. For instance, the job of the people pleaser might be to make sure that we're likable that nobody will find us difficult to make people feel relaxed. And then we might ask What are you afraid of would happen if you didn't do your job? And the perfectionist might answer, well, if I didn't do a really, really good job, people would reject me, decide I wasn't worth their time. The caretaker might Answer, if I don't take care of others, they won't have any role for me. I'll be cast adrift. What is this character most frightened of? What is this part of yourself most frightened of? And then see if you could send a reassuring message from your mind to your heart or just very simple words and images letting this part of yourself know that it can relax, that it can take less responsibility for your safety, that you're willing now to step in and keep yourself safe that you're willing to be more 
vulnerable and thank it for all the times it's helped you without any judgment thanking the perfectionist the people pleaser the critic the caretaker the self-reliant the busybody the workaholic the taskmaster the any form or shape that our survival strategies have taken. And then bring onto stage another character. This one might be less likable. This is the character of our addiction, our greatest compulsive quality, the part of ourselves that secretly binges on food. The part that isolates, the part that numbs, self-numbs through television, substances, shopping, sex. The part of us that just doesn't want to feel anything, especially our sadness, our loneliness. Just visualize this part of yourself with kindness. And just ask it, what are you frightened we might feel if we didn't follow <coughs> your impulses, your compulsion. What would happen if I didn't sneak that food late at night or go on Facebook for hours or compulsively check my texts or purchase that thing on eBay or secretly have that drink What are you afraid we might feel? Is it loneliness? Is it rejection? Is it the pain of an abusive past? Then, gently and kindly inform this part, this frightened part, 
It's okay. We can now feel those pains, those wounds. It won't be as bad as it was in the past. We're now capable of healing ourselves. And ask that part of yourself to step aside and then see if you can connect with whatever emotional energy, feeling, bring onto a stage a part of yourself that's so hidden, that's so buried for years, that's so been kept in the shadows, a part of you that's terrified, wounded, hurt, that needs love, that needs to be taken care of, and instead of running from it and pushing it aside, can you just offer this wounded, sad, disappointed, angry, frightened part love and care. This child that was abandoned or hurt or rejected, it's there on the stage waiting for your love. You might feel it in your body. You might feel it in You can ask, how does it feel? How does it feel? Whatever you feel is okay. You might not feel anything. You might feel just a touch of sadness or you might feel this like contraction in some part of the front of your body or maybe some heaviness behind the eyes. Or the intimation of a greater pain that's still not ready to present itself. And it's all okay.
So we're going to shortly conclude the meditation. So, as always, not pushing away these feelings that we've connected with, honoring whatever has been revealed or opened, no matter how little. And when it comes time to open your eyes, first look at the ground in front of you. Feeling the body maintaining connection with any feelings and then opening your eyes when you're ready.